this is kind of a strange morning for me because um, yesterday afternoon I knew everything that I was going to preach about and I had all the things kind of the I's dotted and the T's crossed and but it just didn't feel right. You ever been in a situation like that where you've got all of your plans and you kind of psyched everything out and I thought, what am I gonna do? How can I come and talk to you about something that seems to me to be boring? Maybe because of familiarity, maybe because of Charlie mentioned earlier, we've all heard this particular passage dozens of times. I don't know what it was, but it just didn't feel right. And yes, last night things started to pop together and all of a sudden that not feeling right kind of was transformed into saying, thank you, Lord. When I needed you, when I called on you, you answered. So as you work through the notes that Ellen has worked diligently to prepare, there may be some variations <laughs> among them. When you're looking for all of the slides that uh, will pop up to kind of help illustrate the message, um, they're as blank as my mind was yesterday afternoon. <laughs> but I'm praying that God has given a message today and um, that an approach that is essentially the same passage will be something that is edifying to me and edifying to you as well because uh, it's basically about listening, pay attention, keeping in step, and sometimes letting go of our old ideas and giving them back to God. Saved by grace. It's a fantastic concept that when you and I, with those of us who know Jesus Christ, those of us who have experienced his saving power, or those of us who have experienced the forgiveness of sin, those of us who have embraced what it means to follow Christ, that fantastic truth that our sins are forgiven, our relationship with God is set and secured, and our destiny is guaranteed. We lose sight of that too often. But Paul never did. He never did. He was a ferocious defender of salvation by grace through faith. And when people started to crowd in on a church that was full of Gentiles, full of people who were used to being considered second-class citizens, people who were used to being reviled, people who were used to people coming on with the tyranny of the law, disappointing them with fury of harsh judgments. He rose up and he said, how is it possible that you are so quickly moving to a gospel that is a different kind of gospel. He said, it's no gospel at all. And he, for the next four and a half chapters, he moves through this 
concept that you are free. You are not under the law. And he pounds at home with theology. He pounds at home with sometimes very harsh language, surprisingly harsh language. He pounds at home with challenges to people not to fall behind, not to go back to a way that was essentially fruitless and draining of all joy and all of peace and all happiness. It just tore you to bits to be living under the law. And he finishes, he, he comes close to the end of this four and a half chapters by saying in chapter five, verse one, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now you've read that too many times if that doesn't sink in a little bit. If that doesn't surprise you. Because even today there are too many churches that have the checklist set there are too many churches that have all of these ways that you can improve on God's grace by bringing your own ideas, your own standards, your own good works into the formula. Well, I hate to, for this to be a surprise to you, but God doesn't need your good works. He just doesn't. God is satisfied. God is, doesn't need to prove anything. He's God, and when he saves, he really, really saves. And there's really not anything we can do to add to that. Is there anything we can do to make our salvation a little better? A little more efficacious? Nothing we can do. So Paul winds up this magnificent section saying, you're not under grace, you're free. And it was Alexis de Tocqueville who said, nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. This is a difficult, complex issue how do we walk through life and how do we live free without just going crazy and doing whatever we want? It's just so antithetical. And so Paul jumps into this having talked about all of the issues of freedom and all of the issues that our salvation is completed by the work of Christ. How does he deal with that without people saying, great, fantastic, let's party? How do we manage that? And this is what he says. He says, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. That means this was part of God's divine plan. This is what God had in store for us. This is what he had in mind, that we would be set free. My brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, Galatians 5.13, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. There's nothing quite as difficult as an indulged, an overindulged child. 
Don't indulge your flesh. Don't use your freedom to make excuses for that. But rather, let's supply a little phrase that just came in from something we just read. Use your freedom to serve one another humbly. And Paul seems to be on one note uh, saying freedom is necessary but use your freedom to do something else. Get on board. Be involved. And he says the reason you should do that is the entire law. The entire law is summed up by one command. One simple command. And that command is That's a good that's a good point. Love your love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And Jesus indeed said the same thing to a rich young man who came and was looking for for uh, some quote advice really to test Jesus. But what Paul said you should love your neighbor as yourself. And I got to thinking how strange that is. Of all of the things that Paul could have said. Just think of everything he could have put in there to say, don't do that, but, don't, but do this. And he said, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And I was going a little crazy trying to figure out how to use this, how to, how to put this into context, how to help us understand what this means. And it just wasn't coming together. Because I went here and there and the other place and the other place. And finally, God kind of said, you know, I told you all about that already in Luke chapter 10. I told you what, that's, I told you what that looks like. Jesus gave us all the answers. So he kind of said, why don't we get back and see what that looks like and how that applies in this context of how we should then live. Don't become slaves, but go a different way. So what I want you to do is kind of keep a marker in Galatians chapter 5. I want you to turn to, to uh, Luke chapter 10. And we're going to be verses kind of rummaging around verses 25 to 37 and seeing what this looked like. And you know the story. You, <clears throat> you know the story. You hardly even need to open up to it. But you should do it anyway. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and then you're going to put a marker in that when we go back to Galatians. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do? And Jesus said, what's written in the law? How do you read it? I love that phrase, the way it's written. How do you read it? And he answered, Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then one who was trying to trick Jesus said, uh, Jesus said, you've answered correctly, do this and live. And it says he wanted to justify himself. 
This is a pretty good teacher of the law because he's looking for a loophole. He's looking for some way because evidently there's something in this man's life that was not loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if he had a falling out with his parents. I don't know if he was just an ornery person. I don't know what it was, but something caused him to look for, look for a loophole. And he said, well, who's my neighbor? Because that guy's causing me trouble, and he's certainly not my neighbor. And Jesus said, okay. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. There's actually an area identified, I believe, where this is supposed to have taken place that Jesus specifically had in mind. And in that valley, there are caves lining the walls, and it was an ideal place for robbers to hide and fall upon people going on this shortcut between Jerusalem and Jericho. And it was a place where it was a dangerous place to go. They fell on him and robbed him. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest came along. And the priest said nothing. He just saw the man laying in the roadway and walked over to the other side and said, mm, no, not today. We don't know why. We don't know if he was busy, if he was on his way to church, quote unquote, but not today. This man was a priest. He was the one who cared for the people. He was the one who interceded for the people. He was the one who did all sorts of really great things, but not today. And another man came down the road. He was a Levite. A man chosen for that priestly tribe, particularly spiritual, his job was to be spiritual. His job was to minister to the people. His job was to help interpret the law for the people. He was the one who was called to come alongside, if you will. And as he came, he saw the man laying in the road. He said, eh, I don't think so, and he went off to the other side. Meanwhile, the poor man is laying in the road, beaten, bloodied, and in tough shape. And along came another man. And Jesus said, a Samaritan came along. Now, I want you to understand, the man laying in the road probably would not have had anything to do with the man who came along because he was most likely Jewish. And the fact that Jesus makes a point of saying he was a Samaritan says that this was a man that was generally despised, a man that they wouldn't have contact with, a man who they wouldn't have dealings with. But he didn't care. He went over and saw this man, and it says he had pity for him. He took pity on him. He could have been the one in Galatians where Paul said, use your freedom to serve humbly in love and fulfill this command, love your neighbor as yourself. So he went over and he helped him. He 
bandages his, he saw him, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took, brought him to an inn and took care of him. He got involved, he moved, he helped, he, he became that neighbor who helped and stepped into the gap. No one forced him. No one said, you know, if you really want to do God's will, you have to minister to neighbors. He just did it. He just did it. And there's a clue there to the way these things work. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, good things start to happen that we're going to see in just a few minutes. On the other hand, if you don't, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Do you, do you hear the extreme nature of the words that Paul is using? It's a, it's a phrase that's used in terms of wild animals that are like a dog fight, where they're tearing each other apart. They're trying to get domination over the other animal. They're trying everything they can, and they're ripping and tearing and snarling and doing all of these things. And Paul says, watch out, or you're going to get caught in the crossfire. Watch out, or you'll devour one another. You're going to kill each other if you don't stop this nonsense. And he goes on to say, so I say, verse 16, so I say, that's, a, that's an interesting word. I, use the way, I love the way that Phillips puts it. Paul kind of leans forward and says, here's my advice. Here's what I think you should do. Walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. And we start to see something forming here, a solution to the problem. Because do you know how hard it is to love your neighbor as yourself? When we take it out of familiar terminology and put it into life, that was a hard thing for that Samaritan man to do that day. That was a difficult thing for him to do, to, to soil his own clothes with blood, with gore, to take him, put him on his donkey, take him to, a, to an inn, all of those things that he had to do. It was very, very difficult. What prompted him to do it? So I say, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. But I have so much struggle doing it. I try so hard. I go to classes. I go to seminars. I do all of this stuff, and it's so difficult. And Paul says, walk by the Spirit. You know, there's a lot of spirit in this passage. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of spirit. In fact, there are four different phrases that are used. Chapter 16, verse, or verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, a slightly different connotation, but referring to the same thing. 
Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, and same thing in verse 25, if we keep in step, if we move behind, stay close to the Spirit. So the Spirit has a lot to do with this. In fact, the Spirit has everything to do with it. If you really understand what's going on, this is a reality to say to somebody, if you want to conquer the battle of the desires of the flesh, because that's the one side. The desires of the flesh are simply, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's how I defend freedom. I'm going to do what I want to do. If it happens to coincide with some spiritual thing, that's great. That may make me feel good, but I don't care that God says it. I'm just going to do it, whatever it is that I want. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what's contrary to the flesh. We are dealing with two mortal enemies here. They can't fit together in the same space. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to try to say, well, I'll just have this little fling, and it'll be great. I'll just have this little bitterness in my heart, and that'll be great. I'll just, I'll just have this little period, this little vacation from God, and then he'll forgive me later, so everything will be great. It doesn't work, because it changes us. They're in conflict one another, so that Paul says, you don't, you are not to do whatever you want. Says it plain and simple. Whatever you want, whatever you feel good, whatever makes you feel good, is not the thing that moves you forward with the Lord and with God has for us. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Simply stated, if you're walking in the Spirit and you're and He's guiding your direction, He's guiding your steps. Law is completely unnecessary. Do any of you think that the Samaritan man that afternoon, when he was taking his time, his money, his effort, his bile, his uh, the gagging sensation that comes when you are trying to help somebody who's been really bloodied up and really hurt, do you think he was saying, let's see, what commandment is this? might not even have known what commandment it was because Samaritans didn't even worship in the same place. They weren't allowed. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the pressure. You're not under the demand because it's a joy. It's a joy. You know what a passion is when your passion for God overwhelms your passion for yourself any of you have hobbies that you just really love and you really enjoy and, and you're doing that hop, hop, habit, not that hobbit, you're doing that habit and you get called for dinner. Honey, dinner's ready, come on in. Okay, I'll be right there, just a minute. And 30 minutes later, your wife is standing at the door with a bit of a scowl on her face saying, the meat's burned, 
the potatoes are cold, and you said you'd be right there. I'm sorry I lost track of time. And you really did. Because you were fulfilling your passion. You were doing what you love to do in a way that you love to do it. And there are things that are our passion that are like that. The hours become minutes. And there are things that work kind of like the law where the minutes become hours. Because we're just operating under a system that we don't belong in. We're operating in a place that we, where we shouldn't be. We're not under law if we're led by the Spirit. Because that joyous coaxing, that joyous say, thing of saying, come on, let's move, let's move. I remember when I was a kid, we used to hike the Mosquito Flats Trail to Morgan Pass. If any of you have ever hiked that, it's the highest trailhead in the Sierras. And I remember my mom and dad walking that, hiking that hike with all, all of us boys at that time. Uh, we weren't boys at that time, we were, anyway. For all of us boys, my sister hadn't yet come along. We were hiking that hike, and I would run up ahead and run back. Come on, Jim, let's go, let's go, let's, let's keep on, let's keep on the trail. Don't go too far away. We don't want to lose sight of you. But it was a joy to be led by my dad. It was a joy to be with him, doing what we love to do. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So what does it look like if you decide you're going to become a Samaritan? Sounds strange, doesn't it? But if you decide you, that man's going to be your model, what does it take? What does it look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like if you're the other two fellows. If you're a priest or a Levite. The acts of the flesh are obvious, Paul says. If you want to choose that other way, here's what you're in for. Impurity, sexual immorality, and debauchery. Rebellion against social mores, but really just throwing all caution to the wind. Sins of, of really sins that just debase other people and ruin yourself. Idolatry and witchcraft. That habit that we have of, of saying, you know, I would like just a little bit of time, God, just a little bit here. If you could just step off the throne for about a couple of hours and move over there, I'd like to take charge. Idolatry and witchcraft. That's what it means. It means taking something else that isn't God and putting it where God belongs so it can satisfy what I want done. And then we have all of these relational sins, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. You can read all of them, but the point is this. It is a messy thing. It is a messy thing. It's a thing that leaves people in the roadside beaten, hurt, without hope when we could do something about it, but we choose not to. Factions, demanding my way, Demanding the things that, that I always be right. Um, hatred, jealousy, 
things that just ruin relationships. And finally, envy and drunkenness and orgies, just wild, crazy things that emphasize excess. That's what it looks like. And if you talk about spiritual fruit, what does that look like? We all know it, don't we? Joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want to tell you how special gifts are often handled. Special gifts are often handled something like this. I do okay on the love side of it, but I really need patience. So I'm going to pray for patience. I'm going to pray for love. I'm going to pray for self-control, because I just don't have any self-control at all. And so we kind of parcel up these different qualities and act as though somehow or another that's the way that it's done. You know, there's nothing in this passage that says pray for spiritual gifts. There's nothing in this passage because you can't make fruit grow. God makes the fruit grow. That's the way it works. And by the same token, when we say, I'm going to pray for patience, I'm going to bubble up this particular aspect of spiritual living. I'm going to pray for love. Somehow or another, we lose sight of the fact that this is not many gifts, this is one gift. It's the gift of the Spirit. It's the gift that when the Holy Spirit is indwelling and infilling and filling your life, and where you've decided, my way is not honoring the things that I want to do. That's not my goal in life. That's not the direction I want to. My goal, my goal is to serve one another humbly in love because that's the way, that's the expression that God uses. That's the alternative. I don't want it to be my way. I don't want it to be what I want. I don't want it to be selfish. I don't want it to be demanding. I don't want it to be uh, hurtful to other people. I want it to be a blessing that comes from God. And so all of these things begin to coalesce into fruit. Something that we leave behind. And the reality is, fruit isn't even for the tree. When the fruit is gone, what does the tree do? It drops it. It drops it. I, I can tell you all about it because the Larson home is the community-wide feeding ground for seagulls. And when the avocados are in season, we can't possibly eat all those avocados. And I used to pick them up and just take them, throw them away, do whatever you do with that avocado. But I left them out there because if there's an avocado on the ground at nine in the morning, by three, it will be completely gone. I mean, the, the, the meat, the flesh, the peel, the, the nut, who, who thought that avocados eat the, eat the inside of the, the, the pit? But they do, and they're completely gone. And you know who gets the, uh, the fruit of my avocado tree? Seagulls. 
And you know who gets the, gets the result of your spiritual fruit? Spiritual fruit, isn't, uh, spiritual fruit isn't meant to say, look at how well I'm doing. Spiritual fruit isn't for you. It's for the person that you affect. Whoever thought up this idea that somehow we become hoarders of spiritual fruit to show how far we advance? In fact, in most cases, the last one to recognize the spiritual fruit in yourself is you. Because you know all the rest of the stuff that's going on inside. You know the things that are driving you crazy. You look at how far you have to go instead of how far you've come. And other people look at you and say, wow, I don't know what happened to you, but you're not the person you used to be. And we simply say, what do you mean? If you knew the struggles I have, That's the point of this little section to say, look, spiritual gifts are a vital part of your life and they show who you are. They show what you want. And Paul goes on to say, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I saw something, I don't know if I've seen it before, I'm sure I must have, but I couldn't remember it. Who's doing the crucifying here? Me. It's you. And what this seems to say is if you move back to that time when you, as a child, as an adult, as, as a young person growing up, decades ago as a senior citizen five minutes ago if you received Christ as your Savior as your Savior something happened and you said I'm nailing this flesh to the cross I'm pounding in the nails myself pretty violent behavior but when it comes to this Lord I'm not taking any prisoners I stand with you. I stand with the Spirit. I claim his power. I recognize that it's never going to be perfect. But Lord, it isn't about me. And do you know how hard that is in a society that says it's all about me? It has nothing to do with anybody else because I'm the only one that matters. That is, a, that is a hallmark of our society today. When I read those works of darkness, those works of the flesh, those acts of the flesh, I just, I thought, I just read that in the paper this morning. I just saw that on the news last night. That is the, the, the perfect picture of where our society is. And do you know how hard it is when we are constantly bombarded with flesh kinds of things. And Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, since Jesus Christ has filled our heart with the Holy Spirit, since we have become followers of him, since we have made a statement, keep in step, 
And that's what takes us out of the past and brings us into the present. Because the Holy Spirit is moving. And if you're not following, if you're not keeping in step, if you're letting other things determine what you do and why you do it, you're losing the battle. You're losing the battle. Let us not become conceited. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. And I go back to our friend from Samaria. Walking along the road, carrying his, walking with that donkey that was there carrying his burdens. He saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity, let's put it in Paul's terms, in the terms of Jesus, in the terms of James. He saw his neighbor. And it didn't matter if this person wouldn't talk to him under normal circumstances. It didn't matter that the person who was actually asking the question to Christ, it didn't matter to him what was going on with this poor man. In fact, when Jesus pointed out the hero of the story, who was the neighbor? You know that that person who asked the question couldn't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan? He couldn't even give credit to the Samaritan. He just said, the one who had pity on him. Let us not become that person. So when it comes to a matter of saying, how do I actually do this? Number one, the key verse in this is keep in step. Keep in step, because this is eminently practical. This is a kind of practical where you get up in the morning and say, Lord, show me a neighbor today. Show me a person that I can minister to. They don't have to be like me. They don't have to be my same generational group. They don't have to be my same racial background. They don't have to be my... They don't have to fulfill any requirements. They just need somebody to be there for them. In the name of Jesus Christ. It's the kind of thing where we see an opportunity and we take it. And I will pretty well guarantee you that if you make a habit every morning of getting up and saying, Lord, I'm looking for a neighbor today. Lord, I'm looking for somebody to whom I can minister. I'm looking to someone for whom I can be a neighbor or a friend in the name of Jesus Christ. I think God will show up. I think you'll start finding opportunities that you never found before. I knew of a man in the inner city who every time, every week when he went to church, he was a pastor, he took two bags of groceries and said, Lord, let me find somebody who needs these groceries today. And he never went home with the bag of groceries. Because he simply said, Lord, let this be the day that I become a neighbor. 
It will change your life, you know. Because you can't have all of this fruit lying around without it affecting you somehow. And you can't have, you can't be affecting all those people without it coming back to you and the Lord saying, I love the way you do that. Especially when I know that you know that you didn't have to do it. Because I love you for you. But you did it anyway. So, if you are caught in a loop today of saying, I've got to do God, I've got to do good for God to like me. God already likes you. If you're his child, God already likes you. God cares for you, he loves you, he wants you to know that. So there we go. Fruit of the Spirit, not a detailed look, kind of a flyover look, but a look that we all always need to know that we have the filling of the Spirit. We have the joy of the Spirit living in our life. And he just simply says, move with me. And I'll move with you. Lord, we thank you for the reality that we are saved by grace. We thank you for the reality that there's nothing that we can add or subtract to undo the salvation that you've done for us. Lord, we pray that this day you will touch our hearts. We pray that you will help us to take seriously the charges that you give us to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to keep pace with the Spirit. Let us, Lord, make that a reality in our lives today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.